0: Welcome to Research Realized, the podcast on advancing university innovation. On Research Realized, we interview thought leaders who are shepherding cutting-edge research from the academic lab through the valley of death. Welcome to Research Realized. I'm Kirsten Loita of Osage University Partners, Today I'm talking with Helga Zietzen, an award-winning technologist, entrepreneur and a recognized global authority on technology transfer and display technologies. As general partner of Tandem Launch in Montreal, he works with inventors and entrepreneurs to build high-growth technology companies. His past successes include the transformation of raw university IP into fully commercialized LED TV technology, including selling his last company, Brightside Technologies, to Dolby Laboratories after sealing partnerships with several of the largest consumer electronics companies in the world. Today, we'll focus on Helga's work at Tandem Launch, where they created over 20 technology companies, accounting for hundreds of jobs and more than $500 million in market value, and commercialized technologies from over 50 international universities. Helga, welcome to our program.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: So I'd love for you to start off and talk with our audience a little bit about what Tandem Launch does.
1: Uh, sure. In a nutshell, we create companies. You just mentioned it in the introduction that we've created uh, actually 27 companies by now. The uh, So that, that part makes us a, a venture capital fund, an investor, a creator of, of companies. That, that's fairly common, but it's the way we do it that is pretty unique. So we create companies synthetically, around deep technology inventions. We start out and find an interesting technical concept at universities all over the planet. We then assemble a team of technical and business and operational executives around it, uh, nurture that team, help them get to a first product, help them get them to first uh, revenue. And then we finance them and syndicate broader financing with them until they become a real standalone company. So it's really turnkey company creation.
0: Great. And, and so what were the origins of TAMNA Lodge and why in particular do you have a partial concentration on academic opportunities?
1: Um, that, that really came from my own journey, essentially. As, as you just mentioned, I was a technology entrepreneur. I guess I still am, but I was a real <laughs> startup founder uh, <laughs> earlier in my career. And um, that, that career went through a bit of a, a, a sequence that led to the epiphanies that basically became uh, TAMNA Lodge. So in the beginning, as an undergrad out at UBC in the physics department, I uh, came across a professor who was, uh, had worked on some display technology, reflective displays, similar to the e-ink display that's in the Kindle uh, today. And uh, we wanted to create a spin-out, so I became a co-founder of that spin-out. We uh, spun it out of the university, we grew it, we did a bit of stuff. And that was all nice until you sort of hit the limits of academic tech transfer. Um, and there's all sorts of limits. I'm sure we'll talk about them a little bit further. But you know the the inability of the professor to really be full time in the business, the you know the difficulties of running this out of a lab and the basement, literally the basement of the physics department at that time. Um, and and so in my second venture, which followed uh, after that, so the first one there's a company called Clear Inc. in Vancouver that still is pursuing that technology. Um, the the second venture, uh, it became clear that. Uh, rather than just coming up with our own invention, which we had done, we invented a concept called HDR displays, which is now you know quite common in the world. Uh, there would be an opportunity to leverage and you know all these other great inventions of professors at other universities that were able to commercialize them. And so, at that startup, Brightside, uh, I uh, negotiated partnerships with eleven universities to funnel intellectual property into the company, build quite a large portfolio, which ultimately led to the acquisition by Dolby. Uh, which was not just for our core technology, but actually for all the stuff around it as well, um, which these academics had a really big part in playing. And today, so when you see the label HDR, high dynamic range today, um, whether it's in a mobile phone that has an HDR camera mode or display that is branded as HDR capable, or something like Dolby Vision, which is an HDR file format that you might find on Netflix to see certain movies in HDR. Um, all that came out of that uh, initial idea. And then all these are Academics and pretty much all the concepts I just mentioned are from these academics rather than from us ourselves, um, and so that created the foundation. I realized there's e- economic opportunity taking really smart ideas that basically just go onto the onto the shelves somewhere for lack of commercialization capability, and turn them into viable companies. And that then you know became the sort of central idea of Tana Launch. And obviously that was almost ten years ago. Uh, obviously since then we have you know tweak the concept learned how to do it better operationally but the, the sort of genesis comes from that really history
0: right and so so you mentioned you negotiated with five, 11 different universities is that right how yeah. did that work i mean were you doing those on one offs or was there a way that you could actually uh do some in combination uh
1: no these were individual negotiations um but uh, so that kept me quite busy i mean these days at Tunnel launch we do that like every average quarter, but back then it was, it was mind-bogglingly hard. Um, the, these were one-off agreements, but we did have sort of a framework. You know, we would uh, approach academic researchers and first we would start sort of with small advisory agreements and with, you know, maybe uh, small projects and maybe funding a student or, you know, we had sort of an, an engagement protocol of first feeling out the waters. Uh, and then when we realized that we had somebody we liked we would really double and triple down into the engagement, often creating very, very long-term relationships. In fact, a, a number of the companies that we've created at Talent Launch, you know, well over 10, 15 years later, are with the same professors who still, I mean, obviously the legal relationship has long expired, but who still have a personal relationship, a quite strong one over the years. And we've built really long lasting uh, bonds there. Um, the, um, uh, and, and this has gone as far as establishing, you know, uh, we I established an endowed chair, established uh, multiple research chairs at various universities, all sorts of things. So the endowed chair came came after the position, you need to have money for that. But that's <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, I want to make sure that your audience doesn't go, "Hey, this is where I go to get my endowed."
0: Right, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to drown in folklore <laughs> But still, that's, I mean, but I think that's really interesting, actually, for our audience to hear, though, is the fact that you um, identified uh, professors, probably intellectual property, too, but professors and researchers that you wanted to have potentially work with for putting this entire organization together to create this commercialized technology. Because um, I think that's pretty, um, obviously, a far vision that you had on that, that uh, is something that people don't often appreciate. Often they think kind of these licenses are these one-offs and that's gonna just kind of create this entire um, entity, but often you really have to be thinking about there's work happening at multiple institutions that could come together. Uh, And we see that at OUP quite a bit with the institutions that we work with as well, um, that there are pieces of IP that could actually come together from different places to make a much stronger whole and potential commercial product.
1: Yeah, no, that's absolutely correct. Uh, In fact, I would argue that most high-impact research is collaborative in nature. You know, it's multiple disciplines coming together, uh, multiple perspectives from academia, from industry, from any kind of intermediate sort of startup environment. Uh, You you sort of need all that to build something worthwhile in the world. Uh, If you look at uh, us here at Tandemange, we, um, so we've done probably around 80, 90, so maybe hundred by now technology transfer deals, material deals, and we've done hundreds of evaluations and little things. But actual IP acquisitions or IP, you know, uh, licenses, um, uh, only stretching across twenty-seven companies, right? And so uh, that right there tells you that for pretty much all of our companies, there are multi-multi source deals where we had to work with um, a number of universities and then do together the the missing pieces. And that can that can take the form of just having sort of a single invention that just happens to be, you know, collaboratively developed from multiple universities, um, but also can be what we call system projects where there isn't actually a single invention, but in order to build a product that works, you need a bunch of different pieces that have to glue glue together, right? So we have, for example, a young venture right now that we're developing uh, with a number of universities, which is a, uh, a self-flying drone, a drone that uses thermals to, to float, you know, basically soar and then fly around. And so for that, you need intellectual property on aerodynamics, on artificial intelligence, on sensors, on flight operations. On, and then of course that thing has to carry a payload. So you need, you know, a computer vision and other kind of, uh, you know, sensor and measurement modalities, um, you know, some of this uh, can just be off the shelf stuff. A lot of it can be new intellectual property. And and so you got this very complex piece of, of, uh, you know, set of pieces that you have to uh, bring together.
0: Yeah, I I mean, it is, uh, it's good for, I think, for a lot of people here, especially who are, you know, looking to endeavor into this area, Mm -hmm. just um, that it's not a simple it's not a simple venture to go forward. Often, you're having to look at across the board at lots of potential pieces that are going to come into this. Um, I'd love to go back to something else that you had mentioned in your previous answer about uh, this gap between the research that's initially done at the universities uh, and then, you know, actual commercialization. And that's one of the areas that Tamalunch Launch is, is looking to fill. I'm curious about: were there any models that you otherwise looked at when you before you launched uh, Tamman Launch itself uh, to help you start your operation?
1: yeah not really um the um, uh, we probably would have been faster and better if we had actual models <laughs> but, uh, so this isn't the sort of like i want to do it myself because i'm yeah. more that this doesn't really exist and certainly nine years ago it didn't exist
0: yeah
1: you know you've got to remember set back in time so uh so first even today we don't know of a lot of outfits if any that do exactly what we do um, but today, at least, there are outfits that have at least aspects of what we do. So, you know, there's a, the accelerator sort of um, network has grown, the mism- you know, with uh, white combinator tech stars, all this kind of stuff. Uh, and so at least there's sort of a concept of coaching startups and the, the sort of assisting with that. Now, these are not startups that these accelerators create themselves, but at least there's the coaching and grooming part. Um, you know, so that's more established. these days. That's why a lot of companies, a lot of people, you know, call us an accelerator, even though we really aren't that that kind of thing. Um, but but nine years ago, Combinator was one year old and techstar didn't exist yet, right? So even that wasn't a particularly good role model. Um, and likewise, there are, you know, some VC funds these days that are a bit more operational, like Andreessen Horowitz has, you know, famously has a bunch of staff that help their companies. But again, Andreessen Horowitz didn't exist yet. Uh, nine years ago. Um, and so, and then of course, you know, the only thing really that nine years ago existed were university incubators, right? But those are basically, I mean, by and large, real estate operations, right? They they have a building on campus, they offer space and maybe a little bit of coaching, but it's rare that university incubators have funding available, any, any kind of meaningful funding. And it's really, really rare for them to kind of pull teams together, which mm-hmm. is really what they should, right? Mm-hmm. If they it would be really helpful if they were to do this, but uh, they generally don't get involved in operational matters like this.
0: Yes, uh, absolutely. Um, you know, going to your background more too, uh, about, you know, since you actually had a company that launched um, from University IP and you continued to help such endeavors at Tandem Launch. what do you see as some of the unique challenges for university startups and, and how is Tandem Launch addressing these?
1: So I think, one of the misconceptions in technology startups is that the goal is to develop the technology um, and it really isn't the goal is to solve a problem in the world and the technology is a tool that may or may not get get you there um, when when we started uh, you know the early journey of brightside um, we had maybe five percent not not of the company we had like zero percent of the company. we don't have a team. We had maybe five percent of the technology that we needed to address the problems that we would ultimately solve and, and make money from right and so this is I think the first sort of conceptual error that a lot of university researchers make where they look at this and go, "Well, I know, you know I've read a blog post, I know I'm missing the business side, I know I'm missing the." you know, you know, the development and I don't have the money. And so they look at the sort of obvious parts of the business that they're missing, but they go, I've got the tech, that part I've got down. Right. And I think there's a, there's a very large mistake there because it implies that that piece can stay static. It implies that that piece can keep working at the pace of university, you know, lab research and so forth. And And it really can't, you know, you have to massively accelerate that piece. Of course you need all these other bits too, but but, you know, it doesn't help you if you're a prof and you're doing some, have, have some interesting tech. You know, it doesn't help you to hire, in quotation, a business guy, right? When, you know, it took you five years to get to this invention, and now it's going to take you five years more to do one more tweak on it, right? You need mm-hmm. to really radically shift pace. And, mm-hmm. and this is, I think this is very often misunderstood. Um, the, 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 the speed limit really is different. I was talking this morning to a, um, uh, to a professor outside of the bounds of Talmadge, I, I sort of help out and mentor uh, a few people that are starting, you know, early career researchers and are just looking to start startups. And I was talking to her, and um, I, you know, I, I, four years ago when I first uh, you know connected with her helping her, um, my first message was, look, this has to move a lot faster, right? And so now we're having these discussions about yes, it has to move a lot faster, and maybe we have to you know find another strategy. Um, in, in the interim, and this is a very talented person working very hard and has achieved you know, in an academic context quite significant results. Um, but in the interim, we have at least a dozen companies that went to being from zero non-existing to maybe 50 people. And those guys are all busy. Of those 50 people, maybe 40 are R&D, are technology, and they're busy every day doing hard work.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, and so you're, you're, you're talking about the people and, and you'd mentioned before about this founding team. It, one of the aspects I really admire about Tandem Launch and, and I think one of the things that separates you is what you are doing to help that recruitment of the founding team. Could you walk us through actually how the recruitment process would work for, you know, endeavor that you bring on board?
1: Uh, sure, absolutely. There's uh, There are basically two types of... Um, Classes of people, let's say, that we're trying to mix into a team. Uh, now, I should say up front, uh, I'm a very, very strong believer that uh, heterogeneous teams will outperform homogeneous teams in the long run. I'm a big believer that diverse groups of people uh, will just do better. It's it's harder to assemble such teams. It's harder to manage such teams. Such teams, but the long-term performance benefits are well studied, well understood, and they're they're very clear. Now, by this, I don't mean the kind of flagship elements of diversity in terms of gender and things like that, that too, you know, we have, we've probably funded more female founders than just about any other outfit, certainly here in Canada. Um, the, but, but that's, that's a coincidence coincidental side effect, right? Like we are not, we're not questing for diversity for the sake of diversity. We're questing for much broader diversity to build heterogeneous teams that basically are more resilient, full of, you know, full of ideas. And, And so, um, because of that, we have multiple different recruiting channels. Um, broadly speaking, we have um, an early career recruiting channel and a, and a late career recruiting channel. So, if you look at um, if you look at our standard sort of uh, recipe for for a new venture, which obviously every venture has tweaks and tuning and, and looks a bit different, but um, the the default recipe would have four leaders. Uh, you have um, On the technical side, you have somebody relatively early in their career who takes on a um, technology leadership role, you know, CTO or something like that. Uh, They tend to be, they tend to have uh, PhDs, occasionally the master's, uh, master's students. Um, They tend to have, let's say, less than five years of experience in the role, you know, maybe a bit more, Uh, but usually they're relatively fresh out of school and they exhibit the kind of attributes that you want in a good uh, technology visionary, right? They're they're good communicators. They can think, uh, you know, two layers ahead. They can, um, you know, create and articulate visions for technology and, and push the boundaries future for further. And most importantly, um, they haven't been beaten up by life enough. You know, they're still full of optimism and energy, and you know, they don't know yet what's impossible. Right. So. But then the thing is, so that gets you a really good start. But then you want to countermatch that with somebody from the late career camp. And so the the counterpart to this is a seasoned en- engineering executive uh, who has been there, done that for often longer than the the other guy has been alive. Right? So somebody who has had all the hits that life can offer in terms of product development, manufacturing, you know, just delivery in general. And we find that that makes a really strong pairing of sort of, you know, visionary optimism and, you know, Gnarly, I can get this thing shipped on the clock. You know, when I, when I commit the ships on August 14th, it ships on August 14th. Um, so that's on the technical side. And on the business side, we do something uh, similar. We have um, uh, a track for an early career, uh, for lack of a better word, hustler. Somebody who is driven to go into the market, who doesn't mind flying everywhere, talking to everybody and really pushing, you know, opening doors, creating the beginnings of, of business opportunities. Uh, and then we match that person with somebody else who's been a seasoned CEO, who's, you know, taken businesses all the way from start to finish. Uh, most of our portfolio CEOs have at least one, often multiple exit under their belt. You know, you know, some have succeeded big, some have succeeded big and then failed and then succeeded again. You know, life has again hit them uh, and have experience scaling an organization, have an experience, know what this company looks like when it has 50 people, know how that feels like and how you have to hire towards that. And that creates again, and so that, those four boxes, you know, split two and two tech versus business, two and two, you know, old versus young, two and two and so forth, um, creates a really strong combination for us. Now, obviously, the sourcing for those two tracks, uh, early career and late career, is different. Um, and, and I should say, you know, I, we use the term early and late career because, you know, you can, you can shortcut this to young and old, but some of the late career guys have achieved quite tremendous amounts by the age of 40, and so they're not that old yet. <laughs> and some of the early career ones, you know, have done multiple postdocs that are pretty close to 40. So <laughs> there's an intersection space. Um, but, but it's really more the career Right? It's the ones that have worked for long periods of time in an operational role and the ones that have uh, with the pros and cons that come with that. So for the, um, uh, for the early career groups, um, we use something that we call our entrepreneur in residence program. Uh, so there the challenge is that unlike the late career guys where you just look at a CV and you get a pretty good idea of what these guys have achieved, Um, the early career guys are mostly blank sheets. Like the only thing you can see from a CV is what school they went to and, you know, maybe what grades they got, which is essentially irrelevant information when you're trying to evaluate energy level and communication skills and drive and passion and creativity and factors like this that have nothing to do whatsoever with getting a degree. Um, You know, getting a PhD is essentially an endurance race, nothing else. Um, And and so it's not really that helpful. Um, So instead, we uh, use uh, a multi-stage qualification process where we have people from all over the globe applying to our Entrepreneur Residence Program. We then bring, uh, you know, we do interviews and normal stuff, skill tests, things like that. Uh, Once people um, uh, meet the sort of initial criteria, they come to Montreal and they go to what we call the qualification program, which is essentially um, kind of a mini, it's a one month exercise where they spend about half their time being placed into an older portfolio company because we find the best way to evaluate our future generation is by the old generation. You know, they know what's needed. So they work closely with you know with their with their you know earlier versions of themselves, a later versions of themselves. Um, and half they work with our team. And we get a really quickly an idea of whether they have what you know what what is needed to build companies with that. And then from there they go into what we call the creation phase where they essentially uh, are put into a, 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 a mixing pool where multiple of such people are blended together into teams, matched up with technologies, matched up with opportunities and sort of form into the beginnings of ventures. And then once those initial little seeds are planted, we then add mix the late career folks. Uh, those tend to go through normal recruiting challenges, right? Because there, you know, LinkedIn works just fine. You just search for the profile you want and, and source the people.
0: Okay, great. I really like the idea, honestly, of the of the four leaders and kind of the mix of those people, um, and having that diversity because I think it really does help people brainstorm ideas and think outside of their where their box is because uh, someone else has a different box that they they typically live in. So um, I really I think that people can that will resonate with a lot of folks and help them think about what it is that the star but startup that they're working with perhaps is missing right now.
1: Um, Absolutely. Also the. Forming a diverse team like this is a skill test in itself,
0: right?
1: It's very yeah. easy. So, so of course, it's challenging. Of course, it's challenging when, I mean, we have all sorts of issues, right? So, you could just imagine, right? The the, the technology leader is fresher of school, but is deeply technical in the domain as a PhD. has basically spent the last decade of their lives focusing on that one thing. And then comes in an engineering VP who's full of life experiences, but is not an expert in that particular domain, has maybe done something completely different for the last 10 years, right? And so that obviously you get friction points, you get disagreements, it's worse, but it is actually a skill test to be part of an organization that has that level of diversity, because you will have to do that, right? The worst thing you can do, which is unfortunately what vast majority of university startups do is like, well, my management team is my three PhD students and I, the professor, I'm sort of the executive chairman, really only because I don't wanna show up every day. Um, and, you know, and so I just give out titles. You're the CEO, you're the CFO, you're the COO, you're the CTO, right? And you are all just these strategies. Um, that's a disaster. You get these sort of very homogeneous type of teams that have, you know, nothing different in perspective, like everybody thinks alike. And, and worse, it's not only that you miss out on the positive benefits of kind of multiple, you know, frames of minds and, and brainstorming. You also get the negative benefit that you become incredibly fragile. Because chances are, you know, things will go wrong in a startup and when the thing goes wrong that, if, that, you know, depresses grad student number one and makes him or her kind of dragging their feet and unhappy about the role and thinking about quitting, you bet that that same thing will make grad student number two, three, and four also unhappy and also think about quitting. And that's when organization topples. Whereas, you know, you'd throw a manufacturing supply chain challenge at a VPN, she's just going to shrug. The tech guy might go, oh my god, this is the end of the world. But the other guy will go, well, dude, I do this every week. right?" Yeah. You throw a big technical problem, like there's an IP issue, it's the engineering guy who might be, oh my god, should I you know, shape up my resume and apply for jobs? <laughs> the tech guy might go, no, no, we can totally solve this. right?" And you yeah. want that resilience in an organization.
0: Right, right. Well, And so speaking of, of resilience and uh, diversity also, uh, you, you actually at Tandem Launch, work internationally. So you work with a, universities from all over the, the the world, you're incubating these teams. I gotta imagine there's gotta be some really interesting exchanges of information there. Have you seen any lessons that the groups have learned from each other due to this global nature within Tandem Launch?
1: Absolutely, in fact, uh- all of Talamont is a is a product of those lessons, right? Like I, I did, what I just outlined as the sort of genesis story was really nine years ago. It's the it's the the high level framework, right? Ninety percent what makes up a company is not those early ideas, framework, or technology, or whatever. It's the culture and the environment and the people you build, right? And those are entirely grown through that international stream of a diverse set of people. So, just to give you a sense, uh, well over three quarters of our people come from outside Canada. Um, so forget Montreal, forget local. Here, like like just you know, eighty percent or so from outside Canada, from all, all parts of the world, uh, we have a, a truly global intake. And this is true at every aspect of the intake. So this is true for this, these uh, independent residents, candidates. It's true for the for the seasoned, late career guys. It's true for our industry partners. It's true for our investors. It's true for our university partners. Every part of this sort of melting pot that we create has a very broad network. Um, in a very international region, so um, you get a ton of perspectives. Um, you also get—it's um, it, not just that you get different vantage points from different people. That—that that true every day. I learn something new. Um, it's that you learn to get along. Um, you know, if if there ever is a lesson for world peace, it's a building like this one, right? We
0: Right.
1: Uh, We have heavy observant uh, Muslims and Christians and Jews and atheists. We have people from, you know, conflict zones working together. We have people, you know, we have, I mean, as you can imagine, um, you know, large parts of our uh, population comes from the places where there are a lot of people, right? So uh, India, China, Pakistan, Iran, like the entire, you know, other Asian sort of southern belt. Uh, is heavily represented as, as well as North Africa, obviously all over Europe and you know, L- Latin America and so forth. So like every part of the world has representation here. We have um, uh, we have somewhere around 40, might be up to 50 now countries of origins in the building uh at the last survey that that you know my my, my HR team did here. Um, you know so you're you're well past the point of there being a, a central it's it's not that there's a uh, you know, a central cultural theme, and we have a few kind of diversity add pieces added to it. Uh, diverse This is the theme, like the launch culture is is a global culture.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, I can I can just imagine how interesting the conversations must be, and it, it must be it must actually just help people open their perspectives uh, and help them not think out them to think outside of the the areas that they usually think in as well. So, um, correct. And then if you add
1: in. Um, I mean, this is, we're just talking about geographic diversity and sort of you know, ethnic religions as was well the cultural elements, uh, but you also get a technical level of diversity, right? So you get, yeah. uh, you know, we, you know, unlike uh, my last company, Brightside, where, you know, it was 11 universities, but it was around all around one technical theme, right? Because it was one company. We're building a, a variety of companies, right? So you have, you know, computer vision guys sitting next to RF, you know, wireless communication experts sitting next to hardware materials people and so forth and so that alone creates a really interesting exchange. in fact, some of our most successful companies are the ones who at a technology level combine domains that don't traditionally get combined
0: yeah yeah well we are we're, we're getting close to running out of time but I, I do want to have two more questions for you and, and one is um, what are your top pieces of, of advice for academic founders looking to start a company and I think kind of going hand in that, hand in that, what are the main reasons you see for failure that, you know, this advice hopefully would help them either avoid or let them run into full force and keep going after they fail?
1: (laughs) I think this comes back to what I mentioned earlier, which is don't think of the startup as the next step in your academic research trajectory, right? Really think of it as a phase change. It's a new phase in life. um, And it's, you know, you always want to make a hard transition to your previous work. So unless you're willing to actually quit your job and run a startup and have the right skill set for it, you almost want to create a barrier, My My strong recommendation is immediately start composing a real management team, uh, start bringing in investors, you know, do everything possible to create a separation line between lab research, which can continue. You can continue being a, a really valuable technical collaborator. there are, easily over 100 professors who are working with and our portfolio companies in all sorts of capacities ranging from, you know, casual advisors to full-blown funding research in the lab. Um, But make that delineation because the, uh, if you don't make that delineation quickly, uh, people will realize that, you know, you're still mostly the professor. People will realize where your priorities sit and it will seep into the culture at every level and it will get harder and harder to peel off that. So make a really hard transition out of the game.
0: Mm-hmm. And, and so, actually, I'm I'm going to do a follow up question on that really quickly. Uh, what are your experiences then, for example, with a, a postdoc or a PhD student coming out of that lab potentially and being the initial uh, kind of scientific leader of that startup company rather than having the the PI doing doing so? Uh,
1: so it is never the PI. Uh, we don't have a single it's, company where right. the in our model, at least, uh, you know. Their job is being professors, they can be valuable collaborators, they will never run or even have a management role in these companies, that's not their job. Um, the a student uh, works perfectly fine. We have a few cases where the student inventor actually is one of those technology leaders of the business, but only a few, we have, I think we have three out of 27. Okay. Um, the, um, and the reason for this is that again, you have to make that hard dividing line. You have to tell upfront, it's a new phase of your life, the value of your, you know, previous work and invention and, and reward for that or recognition for that is encapsulated in the university tech transfer agreement. That's where that lives. You've now applied for a new job. Of course, you have an advantage in the sense that you know the technology, but you also have a disadvantage in the sense that you don't know other technologies. Um, and you're applying for this job now. And you get the, the pay package of that job, the equity package of that job, the title and the opportunity of that job. And all that is aided by your performance and not your prior track record. And you have to build that culture out of the gate because if you don't what ends up happening is you have a you know subpar performance you know in that role only because of history and that will create resentment in the organization it will level everything down to that same level uh and it's it just will be unhealthy like the job is to build a company not to invent a
0: technology Mm -hmm. right definitely um so Rounding out our conversation here, if an act, I mean, imagine there are a lot of folks at this point who would be interested in getting in contact with Tandem Launch, even either to learn more about the model or to say, "Hey, I've got a startup I'd really like you to look at, or a technology I'd really like you to look at." What is the best way for them to get in contact with Tandem Launch?
1: So, uh, you know, I mean, one option is just to send me an email. I'm always, I'm always available. Um, that said, the more efficient way. Uh, just go to our website. There are dedicated sessions, sections for each of the sort of constituents that we have.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: There's a, a section on the era program. There's a section for academic researchers that might have ideas that they want to uh, send our way uh, and, and for late stage executives and so forth. So just go to the relevant section click on the, the contact button at the bottom and there you are.
0: Perfect. Great. Well, thank you, Helga, so much for the conversation today, for your advice and your expertise. I really think that Tandem Launch is um, forging new models and how to bring technologies to actually to the marketplace where people get to use them. I really appreciate the, appreciate the conversation today.
1: Thank you very much. It was a great pleasure.
0: Thank you for listening to another episode of Research Realized. Who else would you like to hear from on our program? Please send an email to me at kleute at osagepartners.com. In the meantime, keep your eye on the goal of making an impact with those academic innovations.